Previously on Saratoga Lights. What are you doing? <laughs> Just looking at Avid. I need you to take me to him. I was like you once. So sure of myself and the world that I lived in. But then my husband got sick. Where's your boss? I think I'm a little more experienced when it comes to the matters of life and death and that which falls between. We'll all be burning in hell one day. Amen to that. Saratoga Lights, Season 2, Episode 9, A Fervent Prayer. We are the sum of our experiences. Maggie Sewell knows this to be true. The horrific heartbreak and loss and suffering that has defined her life as of late, all of it bathed in blood, herself leaving a seemingly ever-growing body count in her wake. If we are the sum of our experiences, she thinks, then I must be the Grim Reaper. Well, I don't suppose you need my advice after all. <laughs> I got lucky. Maggie grins and lowers the barrel of the twenty-two rifle as her proud husband looks on, holstering his own revolver. Thirty yards in front of him stand a row of old cans and bottles. Now one less, since Maggie hit her target dead center. Two out of three? Do you want me to continue to embarrass you? Embarrass me? I want you to show me how to shoot as good as you. <laughs> I'm sure the people of Hardin County would be thrilled to know that their newest deputy was asking his wife for shooting lessons. Looking at you right now, sets my heart aflutter. Is that why you have that silly grin on your face? Yes, ma'am. I feel like I'm back in high school all over again. <laughs> Play your cards right, and maybe I'll ask you to Sadie Hawkins. Well, Mrs. Sewell, I would very much enjoy that. As would I, Mr. Sewell. The two kiss, and there they would linger without paying any mind to the seasons that change around them, if they could. An errant leaf, one golden in hue, lodges itself in Maggie's hair, prompting a laugh and interrupting the intimacy of the moment. Avit brushes it away for her, and consequently loses himself in her smile, as he often does. Did you see that house pop up for sale over on 2nd? Mrs. Mitchell's old place? Sits on a good piece of land. Avit Francis Sewell, are you implying what I believe you to be? Now you've set my heart aflutter. I figure we can't stay in that shack forever if we're going to be raising children someday. You figure correctly. I love you, Magnolia. As a newly commissioned lawman, John Hardigan already had more than his fair share of tales about traffic stops, warrants executed, and arrests made. But work was the last thing on his mind this evening. Deputy Hardigan wasn't sure if he'd ever love again. 
Not since his wife left him for the Lord. Now, I don't mean his wife had passed. No, his wife accused him of being a heretic. And, even though it was typically frowned upon by the church leaders, petitioned for and was granted a divorce by the courts, with the full support of her eldership. Hardigan didn't even know what a heretic was, and up until that point felt pretty secure in his relationship with the Almighty. Though it appeared others, say, including his now ex-wife, viewed things differently. And though Hardigan never much imbibed in drink prior to all this, he understood the medicinal benefit of it these days. He had thrown a few back before getting into the patrol car this evening, but that was hours ago. Now, driving back and forth down these dark country roads across Liberty County, he was ready to throw back a few more. But up ahead, he sees a vehicle driving towards him in the lane opposite, stealthily moving with its headlights darkened. In fact, Hardigan almost didn't notice it until his own headlights reflected off the chrome detailing of the vehicle. After they pass each other, Hardigan makes a wide turn and follows the car. A Studebaker, it looks like. He activates his siren. The pine trees lining each side of the highway are awash in its red glow as the horn wails to life. The car slows down and pulls onto the shoulder before coming to a complete stop. Hardigan does the same. He gets out of his patrol car and cautiously approaches the driver's side of the Studebaker, trying to peer into the vehicle. But the darkness precludes him. As Hardigan reaches the door, the driver of the vehicle rolls down the window and reveals himself to be its only occupant. Let me see your license. What seems to be the problem, officer? You don't have any headlights displayed. The driver pulls a knob on the dashboard and activates the headlamps, illuminating the paved highway in front of them. Sorry about that. Registration, too. <laughs> they seem to be working now. Are you hard of hearing, son? No. Do you understand English? I do. So why am I standing here with my dick in my hand instead of your license and registration? Sure. It's in the glove box. Is it okay if I reach in there? Slowly. The man moves his hand towards the glove box slowly, as instructed. Hardigan checks his watch. The schooner should still be open for another 20 or so. He can probably make it over there and get a drink or two. Something to get him through the rest of the night. Even if Hardigan had seen the driver pull the gun with his left hand while reaching for the glove box with his right, evading wasn't something Hardigan could effectuate given his inebriated state. At such a close range, this would have been a death sentence for any deputy if not for the fact that the driver had loaded the wrong-sized ammunition into the weapon, instead of firing into its intended target and dispatching Hardigan from this mortal plane. The gun exploded in the driver's hand blowing off three fingers and lodging a four-inch piece of shrapnel squarely between the driver's eyes. The driver would succumb to this head wound before he reached the hospital in Beaumont that night. It wasn't until hours later when the car was towed to the station that the body of a woman was discovered in its trunk, hands and feet bound by clothesline with a strip of duct tape across her face. The coroner ruled the cause of death to be suffocation, with obvious blunt force trauma, though the time of death could not be determined with any level of certainty beyond recently deceased. 
It wasn't instincts or intuition that saved Hardigan's life that evening. Merely dumb luck. Or divine intervention. Depending on your perspective. In a dimly lit room surrounded by shadows and grief, a young preacher, one without all the wisdom and knowledge cultivated over his years of service, sits at a small dining table. His wife, Kathy, that's Kathy with a C, not Kathy with a K, as she is fond of clarifying to strangers, sits beside him with his hand firmly in hers. Across from them, holding a quickly cooling cup of coffee, is Trudy. Her doe-like eyes emanating with sadness. She is a husk of a human being. They're leaning in as if there's some great secret between them. Why am I here? I was uh, hoping you'd be able to help Richard. I, I can't help your husband, not in the manner that you were expecting. I thought you were a man of God. Richard doesn't need me. He, he needs a doctor. He's been to the doctor. All of them. They all say it's not a physical ailment. Maybe you should consider some sort of mental health facility that can better address his needs. This isn't some schizophrenia or, or psychosis. There is an evil spirit in him. That's not possible. Yes, it is. The apostles cast out demons. Jesus Christ himself cast an evil spirit into those pigs. The possessions recorded in the Bible were during the Age of Miracles. People were endowed with the power to exercise demons to prove that they spoke with the authority of the Lord Almighty. You speak with the same authority, do you not? The Apostle Paul said it was a temporary era. The Age of Miracles is over, and with it, the possibility of demonic possession. Please help him. We've been on our knees day and night since we heard the news. What more would you like from me? Utter some Latin chant? Hold up a crucifix to cast out the evil? I, I can't do that. That's not what he needs. God has abandoned us. God has not abandoned you. Trudy looks over to Kathy with tears welling in her eyes. Kathy meets those tears with empathy, trying to will Trudy the strength and courage to get through this season of distress. There is a silence between them. The preacher notices Trudy is clutching her necklace, an ornate red pendant attached to a gold chain. That, that's a beautiful piece of jewelry. Richard gave it to me on our anniversary. Will you at least come up to see him? Maybe say a prayer by his bedside? Absolutely. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Amen. The group stands from the table and Trudy leads them up the stairs to the guest room at the far end of the landing. Inside, Richard sits up in bed, staring at the visitors as they enter the room one by one. His face is pale and expressionless, with the skin seemingly cracked and peeling along the edges. The whites of his eyes now have a noticeable yellow tinge to him, and he doesn't take him off the preacher. How are you feeling this evening, Richard? Nothing. No response. Uh, I, uh, I hear you've 
been through a few different doctors recently. Kathy gently puts a hand on her husband's back, giving him the courage to continue in spite of his own discomfort. She nods in encouragement. Well, um, I just wanted to come by and see how you were doing. Uh, Trudy asked me to say a prayer for you while I was here. A dark spot appears and grows on the top sheet that covers Richard's legs. The smell of ammonia hits their noses simultaneously as he urinates on himself, still staring at the preacher. Trudy hurries down the hallway to get a towel and a new top sheet out of the bathroom. She returns to the bedroom and offers an apology to their guests for the foul smell and embarrassment of the moment. I'm so sorry. No, no need to apologize. Trudy pulls the top sheet off and covers her nose. The preacher is trying to be polite, but he has a bad poker face. Kathy, for her part, takes the clean top sheet from Trudy's hand and starts unfolding it. Richard grins at the preacher. In a sudden moment of action, Richard snaps Trudy's neck as she is dabbing the bed with the towel. Her lifeless body drops to the ground. The preacher is shocked. Richard jumps at him with surprising agility, grabs him by the neck, and pins him against the wall. John! Kathy smacks Richard in the face and futilely tries to pry his hand free of her husband's neck, but it doesn't budge. Richard tosses her against the opposite wall with relative ease and sends her crashing into a shelf, a shard of glass puncturing her chest cavity in the process. The air leaves her lung as it collapses. Blood stains her blouse in a growing crimson pattern. Kathy! She experiences a slow, painful death that the preacher is helpless to stop. Richard, despite his slight frame, picks the preacher up off the ground. Both of his hands are trying to pry Richard's hand open as his feet kick and reach out for solid ground, unsuccessfully. The place where Richard is holding the preacher starts to smoke and the smell of burning skin fills the room. Richard starts slamming the preacher's head back against the wall, lightly first, then more forcefully on the next one cracking the pine stud in the wall and knocking him out cold. When he finally came to, Richard was nowhere to be found. And the preacher, surrounded on all sides by heartbreak and loss and suffering, sopped up his guilt and stopped turning a blind eye to that which was plainly before him. The sum of our experiences. Nothing more. Saratoga Lights is written and directed by Randall LaRue. Audio recording and engineering by Matthew David Rudd. Music by Randy Reynolds. This episode featured the voice talents of Brooke Chalmers, Valerie Rose Lohman, Jordan Merritt, Ryan Colt Levy, John Nichols, Sage Hilton, and Matthew David Rudd. Until next time. Where can you go to get a new toaster and a pair of wingtips? Leon's Department Store. What about a wall sconce and a set of spark plugs? Leon's Department Store. How about a loose-knit shrug and a pack of soda water? Leon's Department Store. At Leon's Department Store, you can get everything you need for your home and family under one roof. On sale this week, pantyhose. Let's hear what Ernestine has to say about it. 
I have slender legs and usually I spend all day pulling up my nylons and trying to maintain my modesty. It's embarrassing. But with these, my legs are intimidating. Any unsightly marks or imperfections are obfuscated by the tight, flesh-colored construction of the nylon. I'd recommend the three for a dollar deal to all my friends. Thanks, Ernie. That's right. This week only, all pantyhose are three for a dollar. Big city fashion at affordable prices. That's just one of the many advantages of Leon's department store. <laughs> Excuse me.